Welcome to the Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Thanks again for joining us on The Scientific Method. Uh, today's conversation is hopefully one that a lot of people relate to again. Um, and this one comes right back to our description and our name. Um, at the end of our little description that we came up with, uh, we say that we are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. And I think that one of the loudest noises that you see, especially in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's on social media or TV or on the radio or just driving around and seeing things in general uh, is information about diets and changes in your lifestyle that hopefully will have positive long-term outcomes. Um, January has just passed and we're into February now. And I read a recent study that about 20% of people actually carry their New Year's resolutions into February with the other 80% having already failed. And even more shockingly, that only about 8% really accomplished whatever their goal was that they set at the beginning of the year. Uh, this was obviously pretty shocking. So to understand it, we invited on Dr. Kathleen Briggs Early today. Uh, Dr. Kathleen Briggs Early is our Associate Professor of Biochemistry and Nutrition here at PNWU. And she offers some really interesting insight and some advice on goal setting and actually achieving the goals that you set for yourself. So... Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Kathleen Briggs-Early. So today we are having a conversation on resolutions and setting long-term goals and actually achieving those goals. And um, sadly enough, we're going to have a conversation on how so many people set those long-term goals and they can't achieve them or they, they simply fail to. Um, there was some ridiculous statistic that sort of inspired this that I had read where it said that about 8% of people actually achieve the New Year's resolutions that they set for themselves, which leaves a full 92% who set usually pretty seemingly simple or uh, understandable resolutions for themselves that they don't meet. And I think it was about 80% that fail by February. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of blew my mind. And I started thinking, what is making these people fail? Why is it such a struggle to, to set a goal for yourself that usually is beneficial to you? And you understand that it's beneficial, of course, because you're setting it. Um, and then to fail so quickly and to fail at such a, a massive rate across society just seems strange to me. Um, so to have this conversation, we've invited in Dr. Kathleen Briggs early. Um, so could you tell us a bit about your history with this sort of thing? Sure. Um, I received my PhD from Washington State University in uh, nutrition. And as part of that program, um, like a lot of PhD programs, you have to write a dissertation, conduct some research. So my research project focused on uh, goal-setting behaviors, um, specifically focused on um, people with type 2 diabetes and how they set goals related to nutrition and physical activity. Um, 
and how they do that to help manage their diabetes. So setting resolutions like that, of course, uh, come back to just health, the health of that person, uh, very specifically, especially if you have diabetes, um, it's kind of a necessity to change something. When it comes to the resolutions that you've seen as a nutritionist, um, somebody involved with that, what are the most common ones that you've seen? Not only necessarily when it comes to diet, but lifestyle changes in general. Um, I think some of the more common ones are people want to um, just cut their overall calorie intake. They might want to, you know, stop eating sugar or stop eating fat or um, stop eating processed food. Um, a lot of people in my experience, I worked as a clinical dietitian for about 10 years. And so I did a lot of <clears throat> patient counseling and that sort of thing. And a lot of um, people would focus on fairly big kinds of goals when it comes to their, their diet and activity. And I think that's where people get themselves into trouble is they try and take on too much all at once. And mm -hmm. they haven't really thought through the ramifications of how it's going to work in their everyday day to day life for a long, long time. You know, we um, are now at the stage where we don't really encourage people to go on quote unquote diets. Instead, we tell people, you know, they need to change their lifestyle. But a lot of people grew up in the era of going on diets. And if you're, you know, over the age of 40, <laughs> um, most of the people think about the fact that they need to lose weight or go on a diet. And the problem with that kind of thinking is that it's very short term. And, mm. um, you know, maybe they'll achieve a little bit of weight loss, but oftentimes they pick such dramatic and restrictive um, uh, habits to change, such as, you know, uh, eliminating all sugar, you know, that sort of thing. Most people can't uh, stick to those sorts of things in a long-term sense. Um, and it can also cause difficulty in social settings. You know, it can be really hard to like attend someone's birthday party or something if, if you're on the no sugar diet. Um, so if instead people can adapt more of a just kind of moderation and, you know, a little bit of everything is probably okay, um, in most cases, then that's a more manageable way to um, eat in the long run, mm -hmm. in, in my experience. Yeah, one of the things I was reading about um, as we were kind of preparing for this podcast was most websites I found when they were kind of trying to get behind the psychology of why people fail is one of the biggest reasons was that they set too broad of a goal. So mm -hmm. like you were saying where it was like, I want to lose weight. So I'm going to go on a diet or right. something, but it's just super. And they don't, they don't understand the specific mm -hmm. parts of that, that that's going to make mm -hmm. up. Um, but what I also found was that nobody was really giving the direct answer, mm -hmm. like what the specific goals should be. Sure. And so, um, could you maybe touch on that a little bit? Like what are some really specific goals that somebody could make that would be a little bit healthier and more manageable? Well, it's almost maybe. more, um, about how they set the goal. So mm -hmm. it's not so much that people aren't being specific enough with like, you know, I want to cut sugar out of my diet, or at least, you know, I want to reduce the amount of sugar. I, and I'm just randomly picking sugar. I'm not trying to pick on sugar. <laughs> um, but it's that it, people don't use the, you know, in, uh, in business and, and education and health, we've adapted this way of talking about goals in terms of being smart goals. Mm. So specific, measurable, attainable, like realistic, um, and uh, time bound. So, you know, if, if you want to, if you know you eat a ton of sugar, just because we're continuing with that example, and you know you should cut back on that, then you need to be specific. Okay, what kinds of foods in my diet are contributing to my high intake of sugar? Let's see, I, uh, I put sugar in my coffee. I drink, you know, a regular Coke or Pepsi at lunch. Uh, I 
eat sugary cereal for breakfast and I um, eat white bread for sandwiches and, uh, you know, I have dessert every single night. So, so once the person has identified those trouble foods, then they can say, um, you know, I'm going to only have one of those things, you know, maybe twice a week or something like mm-hmm. make it realistic. Because most people, if you say I'm going to completely eliminate all of those things, I mean, I think I listed five things right there. If, if people, if an average person is to all of a sudden try and cut out all of those five items all at once, when they're accustomed to doing that every single day, mm-hmm. most likely they will fail. Yeah. Because it's too big of a change. So instead, if they are um, specific in how they're going to do it and um, in what foods they're going to target to change, and then they're time bound, meaning, um, you know, this month I will only have, you know, I'll only use a teaspoon, a a measured teaspoon of sugar in my coffee instead of just pouring sugar in my coffee. Mm. You know, that might seem like a really insignificant change, especially when you're talking to some people who can get really on board with like absolutely no sugar ever again, you know? Um, and that's great when it works for those people, but that doesn't typically, that type of personality isn't super widespread in the, mm-hmm. in the public. So, um, so instead we have to help people, you know, make much more, uh, small measurable kinds of changes. Now, when it comes to setting those, uh, those giant changes that people want to make, uh-huh. does that come back? Uh, it would be my guess that it comes back to the idea of wanting instant gratification. So if somebody sure. wants to lose weight and right. they set a goal of, uh, I'm going to start January 1st right. and I'm, I want to lose 30 pounds this year. Uh-huh. Um, and by February, they've only lost two pounds. They're right. going to get discouraged and frustrated. Is that what you've seen in your experiences? Yeah, absolutely. People don't understand that um, to, to do something really significant, like lose 30 pounds, which we have all these physiological mechanisms to work against weight loss. <laughs> we have layers and layers and layers of mechanisms in our body to prevent losing weight because, of course, there was a time in the human evolution when we would starve to death if we didn't have all of those mechanisms to protect our body from um, excessive weight loss. So now that we're living in a world where that's not at all necessary, you know, our body doesn't know that difference. So it becomes very difficult to turn off those signals. You know, we have all of these hunger signals that kick off in our brain. And and, um, then again, when you add in all of the media we're exposed to that, you know, we have a whole, we have whole channels on TV that are dedicated to food. So if you think about all those common, those frequent inputs that people are getting, basically telling them, you know, eat, 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 it can be, it can get really um, challenging. And now I've forgotten what your original question was. Yeah. Well, (laughs) to build on that, I kind of have a new question. How do you, uh, Tell people to avoid those sort of things when they're so common. I mean, you can't drive down the street without being sure. uh, kind of pulled in one direction right, or the right. other for probably something that's not good for you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we usually, you know, encourage people to um, do the th- control the things they can control. So you can't control the billboards you see, you can't control the fast food stores you drive by or whatever, but you can control the the um, amount of TV you watch and the type of TV you watch. Um, you can control what goes into your grocery cart and what doesn't. You know, when I have people say, um, I mean, I used to work in pediatric endocrinology for a, a time in my past, and I would have patients who had their kids in, you know, to be seen by the pediatric endocrinologist, and the kid was being seen, say, for, you know, obesity, and the, the mom would explain, you know, well, uh, 
Billy or whatever his name is, you know, he gets up every morning before I do and helps himself to the sugary cereal and he'll eat the whole box before I wake up or something like that. Mm. And so we would have to explain to the parent, you know, I'm sorry, but it's your job as a parent to not bring those things into the house. Your five-year-old child is not going out and buying those things on their own. That's something that you have chosen to purchase at the store and then you bring it into the house and then it sets up this difficult situation for a parent. So if you can get those folks to understand that simply the decisions they make at the grocery store can really have big impacts on what people in the family are going to be exposed to um, in terms of opportunities for eating excessive amounts of calories and sugar and all that stuff, then, you know, that can be helpful. Um, getting back to your earlier question about losing 30 pounds, um, one of the ways that uh, we like to encourage people to, to do that, and I, when I talk to the medical students about, you know, teaching people to change uh, lifestyle, lifestyle habits, is that um, dietitians, which I'm a registered dietitian also, um, dietitians are often preaching the very boring, non-exciting things to people. So we talk about losing one to two pounds a week, you know, just very slow, gradual changes, which is not sexy or exciting to people. And so people who are looking for that instant gratification have a real hard time with that kind of approach, um, even mm. though research has shown that that kind of approach actually is the more likely one to result in long-term benefits. So mm. the people who lose five pounds in January, February, March, and then they gain it back plus another two or three pounds, then they're back up seven or eight pounds by the next January. Those are the ones that, you know, really are increasing their cardiovascular disease risk. So, um, yeah. Mm. Now, when it comes to people sort of like the, um, the populations that you're discussing that have these habits that are tough to break. Mm -hmm. um, it seems that so many of those habits are based off of the idea that it's it's kind of quick and easy and usually cheap to eat unhealthy. You know, so if mm -hmm. if you're if you have a kid and he wakes up in the morning, it's easy to pour him a sugary bowl of cereal, mm -hmm. and for lunch, it's easy to make a, a sandwich on white bread, and mm -hmm. you know, have all these go get fast food for dinner and. Right. They, they're just accessible and they're quick. How do you mm -hmm. encourage people to make those changes, which may seem small, but it, it's kind of a drastic new lifestyle for them? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, a, a lot of um, patients that I would see who and that I still see down at UGM, um, they're working on very tight, you know, time schedules. They don't have a lot of time. You know, some people simply nowadays don't have the know-how. They, they We have lost touch with our ability to cook and prepare food and um, we don't use our kitchen for anything except storing our dishes. <laughs> um, so, so getting people to understand that they have to really revamp their whole lifestyle um, is a challenge. But you do have a segment of the population that really wants to do that. And, and mm -hmm. they uh, recognize and, and value that kind of information. So um, oftentimes it comes down to just laying out your case like, you know, hey, this is what I'm proposing how do you think it sounds and some people are going to be no thank you that's not at all what I'm interested in okay mm -hmm. um, but other patients will be okay uh, I'll, I'll try it and those are the ones who you can you know get on board and really kind of um, see more than one time and, and hopefully help them make that long-term change that they stick with for mm -hmm. the rest of their lives. So you mentioned earlier like one of the biggest things you can do is decide what you buy at the grocery store so mm -hmm. um, I think at least in my experience, one of the, the biggest uh, setbacks or I guess kind of uh, trip ups mm -hmm. <laughs> has been um, 
we get to we me and my husband will come home from work and we get home and we're Ugh, I don't know what to cook. Right. We don't have anything and well we better just order takeout or sure. we better you know and that's mm-hmm. kind of like we kind of just feel like overwhelmed a little uh-huh. bit where it's like well I can't think of something healthy to cook at all. Right, right. So what am I supposed to do? So what would you suggest like are some basic things that people can start mm-hmm. maybe like purchasing or, or a step they can take to help uh-huh. plan their meals or like what what do you think? Right. So I'll give you an example from my own personal life. Um, because this is an issue that my husband and I, and we have two kids, um, our family has also struggled with meal planning. And, you know, a lot of people assume because I'm a dietitian and a nutritionist, they're like, oh, you must eat perfect all the time. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like everybody else. I have a very busy life and, you know, we both work full time and all that stuff. So um, what we did actually recently was um, we uh, purchased a $12 app at the app store called Any List, and it is it has revolutionized our ability to plan meals. And uh, we sit down every weekend, usually Saturday, maybe Sunday, and we just sit on the couch and flip through recipes on our phones or our iPad or whatever and pick the next seven days of meals. And Mm -hmm. you put it in the any list and it uh, tells you, you know, what ingredients are needed. And then it compiles a grocery list for you. And then you go grocery shopping and you mark off the stuff you got on the list. It also allows you to share things. Mm-hmm. Um, between people. So, you know, like if my husband's coming home, I can say, hey, I added something to the list. Can you stop and get it or whatever? So it's it's really honestly been super helpful. There's a ton of, of those types of things available at any of the app stores that you might use. So I really encourage people to take advantage of the technology that's available nowadays. And um, you can import recipes from you like foodnetwork.com, you know, has a bajillion recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellie Krieger is one of their um, Food Network uh, people chefs, I guess. And, uh, she's also a registered dietitian. So she has a lot of very healthy recipes that are also, you know, tested and pretty good. Um, so I encourage people to do that sort of thing. You know, there's also the, um, uh, I forget what they're called, the meal service companies like uh, oh, Blue Apron yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. all of those other places. There's a, a ton of those options nowadays. And a lot of people find those super helpful because maybe they um, not only lack the time, but maybe they also lack the skill or the interest in preparing mm-hmm. food. So those th- those things can be really nice if you can fit them in your budget because they do tend to, of course, be a little bit more expensive than just buying your own food. But um, they uh, provide a recipe, you know, they, they package all the food. So it's just like single ingredient, you know, like two teaspoons of lemon zest or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is easy and very straightforward. I've, I've tried one of those before and, um, and it's pretty fun. And, you know, if you can afford it and deal with the, the recycling, which that's why we had to stop is because we couldn't recycle most of the stuff. Mm. Um, and so that's another option. Um, you can also do, um, other types of uh, pre-prepared stuff, but again, depending on the budget, that can get you know more costly. So, um, yeah, meal planning is a is a common issue that a lot of people struggle with. And um, if you can uh, take advantage of the technology that's available, that can be helpful for that kind of thing. Now, when you're speaking of um, some of these foods that people are concentrating on and maybe concentrating on in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Um, I had sort of started to compile a list of all these things um, that so many people, when I look at the resolutions of other people or hear other people talking about it, you've already mentioned, like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to cut out sugar. I'm not Uh going to have carbs this year, you know. Uh Um, And I think that there's a lot of misinformation about a lot of those food groups that, quite frankly, I'm not even sure what the truth is at the end of the day. Uh Um, So could we walk through some of those different things? Uh, Maybe we could start with sugar Um, and just kind of some of the truth about uh, the 
the effects of sugar on a diet and whether or not it's something that should be cut out completely or should be had in moderation or uh-huh. is okay and um so I you know disclosure I am a realist and a fan of moderation I am not a fan of people eliminating entire food groups or eliminating entire chunks of you know their diet um there are some people who um, find that works really well for them and some people who tend to be very um, kind of more rigid thinkers um, they really are they gravitate towards those types of approaches and and I think that's fine you know um, but for the majority of you know common person on the street types of things um, you know yes they probably could do with less sugar but to tell them to never eat sugar again is probably not going to be successful. So instead, I would encourage them to, you know, look at their overall diet, um, look at the the areas that they tend to have excess amounts of sugar. First of all, help people identify what sugar is. And I'm doing air quotes here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because sugar means different things to different people. Yeah. Um, some people believe that any carbohydrate counts as sugar. Uh, some other people promote the idea that no, only, you know, processed carbohydrates count as sugar. Um, if you look from a food science perspective, all carbohydrate foods ultimately become blood glucose, which is a sugar, mm-hmm. <laughs> the very basic sense of the word. So, um, you know, there's like two grams of two grams of carbohydrates in most vegetables, such as carrots and tomatoes and all that stuff. But if you're a person with diabetes, I'm not going to tell you not to eat carrots or not to eat tomatoes. And mm-hmm. I'm honestly not even going to care about the small amount of carbohydrates that are in there because they are kind of counteracted by all of the fiber that are in those vegetables. So mm-hmm. um, for for people with diabetes who are kind of the the best c- scenario to, to use an example of how sugar can affect you know someone's body, um, we tell them to eat a consistent amount of carbohydrate foods. We uh, encourage lots of high fiber foods, lots of plant foods. We discourage things like processed foods and, um, you know, any liquid carbohydrates um, like regular uh, soda pop or cola, whatever your terminology is, <laughs> or um, carbonated beverages of any sort that have um, sugar in them or carbs. If you look on the label, the labels are using terms like total carbs and then under the total carbs, it will say sugar. Um, so, you know, trying to keep all of those things to a limit as much as possible, but it really depends on where people are at. You know, if you have somebody who eats a diet that's extremely heavy in processed foods to help them make that change again, kind of goes back to what we were originally talking about. It's not likely to be successful. If you just tell them you cannot eat these things ever again, Mm. stop doing it. And more likely than not, they're going to end up you know, feeling bad about themselves if they fall off the wagon, so to speak. And um, it's just not a a super effective way to go in my experience. So, yeah. Yeah. When you were um, just that kind of reminded me of another question I had. So ultimately, I mean, we make these resolutions or we make these goals and we're probably going to mess up and we're probably going to fail because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what people do. So um, what would be your suggestion for somebody who maybe has made a resolution or Mm -hmm. who has been trying to do this lifestyle and uh, lifestyle change and failed Mm -hmm. and is trying to motivate themselves to get Mm -hmm. back at it? Like Mm -hmm. what would be some of your advice for somebody like that? Well, I would, I would want to know, you know, what they had set out to do and how that compared to the realistic idea of what was really feasible for them to do. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said earlier, some people take on too much and they try and set the bar way too high for themselves. And so that kind of lends itself to setting themselves up for failure. Mm -hmm. Um, If, 
they understand what an appropriate goal is or an appropriate resolution is when it comes to lifestyle changes, um, that can be helpful, you know, in getting people. I mean, usually when when we do nutrition counseling with people, we don't have them set more than two goals mm. concerning their their diet, and they're usually very small things. Um, one of the, the one of the most common ones I would always use is trying to get people not to necessarily cut things out, but to add vegetables into their mm. diet because. Um, I don't know if this would surprise you or not, but, you know, most Americans do not eat fruits and vegetables to the level that they're supposed to. We're supposed to have five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Most Americans eat peas, corn, and potatoes and not a whole lot else when it comes Mm -hmm. to vegetables. And then they might have some sort of fruit juice or something. Um, But uh, getting people to add in non-starchy vegetables, all of those vegetables except the peas, corn, and potatoes – um, can be an achievement in and of itself. So mm-hmm. if if we can get people to to do something like that, sometimes that's a more successful way to make a change rather than telling people to focus on taking things out of their diet. If they can instead put these very nutrient-rich, low-calorie, high-fiber things into their diet, those will kind of naturally supplant some of those other foods. Before we uh, get too far into it because I can already feel myself sliding down the nutrition (laughs) rabbit hole. Um, The idea of just resolutions in general, um, obviously the only resolutions that people make aren't dietary resolutions, Uh but there are a lot of other ones. Um, Could you talk about some of those other common resolutions, maybe somebody wanting to exercise more or somebody Mm -hmm. wanting to quit smoking or something Mm -hmm. like that? Um, Because those also seem to face a huge amount of struggle for the people who are trying to make those happen for themselves. Um, Could you Kind of talk about that a little bit and provide maybe some advice for people who are trying to make those other changes outside of the dietary changes. Sure. So the exercise situation has a lot to do with time. And most people who are not current exercisers, if you just have a conversation with them about, you know, well, what's preventing you from exercise, they'll almost always say time. I don't have time in my day to <clears throat> to exercise. But then when you do kind of a little informal time management study of those folks, um, they often have time to watch several hours of television every evening, mm-hmm. um, to play some sort of a game on their cell phone for, you know, who knows how long. Um, a lot of people do have time. It's just a matter of what your priorities are during your day. And for some people, exercise is not a priority. And I have told that to patients. You know, if, if I have a patient come to me and say, you know, I, I've I've got the diet nutrition part down. I'm doing great. I really need to start exercising. So we'll talk about like, okay, why don't you go through your typical day for me as far as when you wake up, when you eat your meals and snacks and what your work schedule is, when you go to bed, all that stuff, when you pick up kids or drop off or whatever. And there's almost always some time in there that people are not willing to give up because they feel like that's, you know, that's important to them. And that's a choice that they're making. So I really encourage people just to think about that and, you know, you make your decision about what's going to work for you and what you value the most. For some people, it requires putting a video screen of some sort in front of an exercise machine. And for some people, that works great. For other people, they really hate exercising indoors and it becomes more of a seasonal challenge. You know, for where we live, it's really tough to maintain a constant outdoor exercise level year round unless you're pretty hardcore. I used to have a biology teacher in high school when I worked in, when I lived in Chelan, who would cross country ski to to work in the winter time and he lived like 25 miles from town and, oh my gosh um, yeah he was he was uh, he was great but um you know there's that's a very narrow segment of the population so for the majority of people you have to figure out what's going to work for them and if if that is really a priority for them 
when you're thinking about things like smoking, that's kind of a different ball game because, you know, it really has a physiological addiction. And yeah. I would encourage you to talk to other people who are more expert on that than I am. But, um, yeah, quitting smoking is a big one. And, you know, there's a lot of medications to help people nowadays with that, which seem to be very successful um, in addition to things like apps and, you know, meditation and other stuff that can also help. Yeah, it mm -hmm. seems. Um, and I was in looking at this again, it came back to the, a lot of it being dietary. And I was looking at the obesity rates in the country. I was kind of blown away by those. And um, I was trying to make the connection of how diets have changed. And of course, they have uh, over generations just becoming more inclined to go and eat processed food or eat those sugary foods that have become more popularized. Um, but it seems to me that uh, lifestyles in general have changed so much that it kind of encourages people to be a bit more unhealthy. So mm -hmm. a lot more people have desk jobs and a lot more people have all these little sort of micro addictions, whether it's right. going online when they get home or watching TV mm -hmm. or which kind of keeps them off of their feet and sitting mm -hmm. down and probably eating something unhealthy as they're doing the things that they're doing. Sure. Um, how do you recommend that people combat those things that are just so common in society of you know, always having a cell phone and uh -huh. being able to be carried away into a different world right. by pulling it out of your pocket. So again, I encourage people to um, go to the app store. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's apps like one called Moment, which tracks your cell phone use and your screen time activity. And it will give you little reminders like, you know, your screen time time has increased one hour from yesterday or it's decreased by 25 minutes from yesterday or whatever. And you can view a report and all that stuff that tells you how many hours of screen time you're <laughs> getting just by using your phone. So um, that can, you know, because sometimes it's an awareness issue. People just simply don't realize they're constantly grabbing their phone to look at it or to check email or Facebook or whatever people are doing. Um, so a lot of times just bringing some awareness to the issue is important. And really, you know, the this is kind of a separate topic, but the idea of uh, mindfulness and meditation really um, shouldn't be uh, overlooked because that can be a really good way, you know, because we have all these chronic distractions in our life nowadays with um, technology and media and all that stuff. Uh, we're all carrying around very high-powered computers <laughs> in our pockets, or most of us are. Um, it can it can get really challenging for people to just pay attention, you know. I mean, I've even thought of it myself how, you know, in years past, before cell phones became everywhere, because I'm old enough to remember when cell phones were not everywhere, <laughs> um, we used to just, there used to just be silence. There would be silence when you're going from point A to point B. You wouldn't be able to, like, turn on music or listen to a podcast or something like that. Um, and now there's always the ability to be listening to music or hearing someone's voice telling you something or whatever it might be. The, endless, the options are endless. So um, getting people to just recognize that and uh, using a, a mindfulness and meditation type of approach can really increase people's awareness to those types of habits. Um, otherwise, you know, things like journaling, kind of a more old school way of doing it, or you can, of course, journal on a phone. Mm -hmm. um, but again, if you're trying to get people to decrease their, their screen time, then um, that's kind of working against it. So, but getting people to journal when they're doing things works for some people, but a lot of people get very tired of it very quickly. So they'll do it for a few days and then they get sick of it. So even even having people write down what they eat, I try not to ask people to do that for more than a couple of days because it just gets tiresome. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't imagine that it would. Um, 
I'm going to get slipped back into the rabbit hole now now that I've uh, peeked my head out. Um, So I kind of want to talk about some of the misconceptions that a lot of people have and even that I have had in the past um, as far as what a healthy diet is and how Mm -hmm. you can remain healthy and what foods to cut out. Sure. Uh, So I know that growing up, I was pretty much under the understanding that things like salt were the leading cause of high blood pressure or Mm -hmm. that uh, diets that were high in fat caused obesity. Mm -hmm. Could you speak about some of those misconceptions that people have and what's kind of been discovered um, probably more recently that a lot of people still don't really understand? Sure. Um, I guess first I'll touch on the the hypertension salt issue. So so salt is a still a very big important contributor to hypertension. I don't know the exact statistics on how much of it is directly attributed to salt intake, but um, the salt in our diet via processed foods, and when I say processed foods, I mean in the very generic term. So any food that you purchase at the store that comes in a package is under this definition of processed food. So all of those foods through food manufacturing have had their salt levels increased over the last 20 years. Because food manufacturers quickly realized when you were trying to make something lower in fat or lower in calories, fat provides flavor to food. If you take fat away, you have to add something, sugar or salt, to increase the flavor of it. So um, salt was kind of the go-to thing that a lot of food manufacturers have done. So we have now, um, they've done, data on data analysis on this where they've actually taken food off the shelves and analyzed them and and done all of the um, cool food science research that has actually shown that the the salt intake or the salt quantity the sodium intake in um, that we get from those foods that we purchase at the store has increased by something like 20 percent over the last um, 20 years or so 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 that right there is one problem that um, actually it's it got to the point where a few years ago a number of leading health organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health and other people got together and they basically kind of begged and pleaded with the food manufacturers mm. to to slowly lower the salt intake because salt and sugar are both acquired tastes. So these are things that our uh, taste buds adapt to. So if you um, suddenly dramatically reduce your salt intake, food will taste terrible. But if you do it very, very subtly over, you know, many, many weeks or months or even years, in this case is what it's going to be, um, it, it won't be so noticeable and you won't notice. So whenever we instruct somebody on a low salt diet, we always tell people to do it, um, you know, slowly and also keep in mind that uh, when they get the when they get accustomed to the flavor of not adding salt to food, it won't taste as bad a month from now as how it tastes right now. So trying to reassure people that it's a short term problem is helpful. Um, what was the other part of your question? <laughs> um, so, uh, it also highlighted the idea of low fat diets. Oh, right, right. So yeah, how, how, uh, low fat and all that stuff. So, so back in like the eighties and nineties, um, a lot of research came out pointing the finger at fat as far as being the big culprit for heart disease. Um, and that became kind of the target nutrient. Um, fat is a macronutrient. We have three macronutrients available to us. We have fat, protein, and carbohydrate. So if we reduce one of those macronutrients, we have to increase the others if we're going to keep calories the same. Okay. Um, So fat is also a target because it contains more calories per gram than carbs or protein. It contains nine, whereas carbs and protein contain four. So um, it became an easy target for food manufacturing and, and diets and other research studies to say, well, let's just lower the fat intake and you'll lower people's caloric intake. What they didn't realize and what we only started to understand in the early 2000s or mid-2000s really was um, 
that by decreasing the fat intake, we increased the sugar and salt intake in almost all of these types of um, diets and analyses. Because we had to do that because if you're looking at a weight loss study, say some sort of trial, whether you know they have two groups of people and they're trying to cause these people to lose weight, so um, they're going to put one group of people on a low-fat diet, one group of people on the quote-unquote you know higher-fat diet. Um, but to keep the calories the same, the other two macronutrients, protein and carbs, have to change a little bit. Mm. So what they were inadvertently doing was giving the low-fat people a highly processed carb diet and giving the high-fat people a lower processed carb diet. And that ended up creating these results, which at first seemed like, oh, fat is the reason that we're having all these problems. But then down the road, we realized, no, that's not quite the case. We um, are now realizing that the obesity epidemic and the heart disease problem, which really has not gone away and has not improved, is due to the fact that we were giving people the idea that replacing fats with processed carbohydrates was an acceptable thing to do. And now we realize that's not true, but it's more nuanced than just fat and carbohydrates. It actually depends on what types of fats you're talking about and what types of carbohydrates you're talking about. This kind of minutia does not go over well when you're trying to get a quick, flashy message out to people. Mm. So a lot of people have glommed on to this idea that all carbs are bad, all fats are good, and protein's fantastic. And it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Some other things that um, that always come up, and you see people get like in fierce debates about them on mm -hmm. the internet. Usually, yeah, right? people get in fierce <laughs> debates. Um, things like dairy uh -huh. um, and gluten, gluten, yeah, yeah. and uh -huh. just all of these uh, these foods that have always seemingly been around, but all of a sudden mm -hmm. people are in a, a waging war against. You know, you can't ever have dairy because it's completely unnatural and it shouldn't uh -huh. be a part of the human diet. And sure. What about those extreme groups? Um, and a lot of people who are reading from those extreme groups, these statistics and uh -huh. these these uh, pieces of evidence that may or may not be true. Right. What could you say about those sort of things? So again, I you know full disclosure, I'm a I'm a moderation person. So mm -hmm. um, if somebody tells me they feel better eating eating a gluten free diet or they feel better eating a no dairy or a vegan diet, then I say have at it. Fantastic, that's great. Um, but as a, as a large public health message, again, most average people on the street can't really wrap their brains around having a vegan diet, mm -hmm. you know, cause that's usually what dairy is part of is the vegan argument. Um, I'm all for a vegan argument, uh, because you know, there's, there's ramifications when it comes to, um, the foods that we eat beyond just our health. There's environmental ramifications to eating a very meat and dairy and, animal protein-based food. It's very inefficient to feed an animal all of this grain and water and then carve up that animal to eat that as protein. That's a really inefficient way to get the protein. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one of the vegan arguments, and I, I totally uh, recognize that and agree with it, really. But for a lot of people, that's just unfathomable for them to, to not you know have dairy as part of their diet or to not have uh, wheat as part of their diet, So which it doesn't really go with the vegan argument. But... Um, uh, but for, for those people who that doesn't work, we have to find kind of a more middle ground. And um, there isn't a lot of evidence to say that dairy is, you know, a, a huge contributor to the obesity and cardiovascular problem we're having. But there is really good evidence, and I tell the medical students about this, that, that the, the idea that was pr promoted back in the 80s and 90s about, you know, you have to drink milk to have good bone health, 
that's kind of all nonsense. That, that research really has not panned out. And it really came out of the dairy industry lobby and lobbying um, uh, the USDA to get that incorporated in its food pyramid, which we no longer even use and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, And you can say the same thing about the meat industry and all of that other stuff, which is probably going to make a lot of people angry. But um, that's kind of how how our food policy unfortunately has been developed. And I encourage anybody who's interested in food and politics to go to a blog by uh, Mary Nessel. She's a professor at um, NYU and she has a food blog called Food Politics. And she gets into all of these details about the influence of politics on our food policy and our food supply and all of that. It's very interesting. Um, but for, so going back to your original question. So for people who want to be gluten-free or dairy-free or whatever, I say, great, have at it. Um, but as far as the health benefits of those things being, you know, the number one culprit of all of our problems, there really isn't a lot of evidence to support that. Um, there's not a lot of evidence also, like I said, to support the idea that you have to consume dairy products to have healthy bones. Mm. Um, but, you know, you can totally uh, have healthy bones on a vegan diet, for example. But, um, yeah. Are there, <laughs> that was kind of as I was going through these things and as I, Every once in a while, it seems like every few years you mm -hmm. hear something that's so shocking because you've learned your entire life sure. that this yeah. one culprit <laughs> is the thing to blame, and then right. you find out that it has nothing to do with it. Uh -huh. Are there other um, examples like that of uh, kind of like the, the lobbying and the misconceptions that are put into the public? And Because I was curious as to the foundations, like where do they come up with the idea that milk causes you to have strong bones and then it comes out to not be true right. at all. Well, it, it, I believe it originally probably came from a good place. You know, we we obviously understand that 99% of the calcium in our body is stored in our bones. So they just kind of connected the dots and said, well, you know, people who don't uh, consume a lot of dairy products, which for a large swath of the American population, dairy does tend to be a very significant source of calcium. Um, then they might have worse bone health. Another problem that happened was there was a, a study that was done, I think in the early 90s, and they, they were looking at adolescent teen girls, and they followed them over time, and the girls who consumed um, the lowest amount of dairy had higher rates of fracture later in life or something like that. But they didn't account for the idea that um, vitamin D is really, really important also in bone health, and Vitamin D is actually added into our dairy supply, so, so that tends to be a major way that we get it. But we also, of course, can make vitamin D through our skin, but only at certain times of the year. This particular study, I believe, was done in the Northeast somewhere, so they're at about the same latitude that we are. And um, so the, the population didn't have probably uh, adequate vitamin D status apart from the dairy issue. Mm -hmm. So um, that was one of the studies that kind of fed into this idea that, oh, you have to drink milk to have healthy bones yeah and now we understand it's again more nuanced than that which people don't like nuance <laughs> yeah it's so interesting yeah. to think about because they're such mm -hmm. common right again i think if you went to 100 people in a room out of a, a random selection sure. and said does what's the, how do you have healthy bones right. 99 of those people would be like yeah. oh you drink your milk right well and mm -hmm. i'm i mean they're still teaching it i have yeah. i have a nine-year-old and she's she's getting a little health session every week this this school year or this spring or something and they're, they're teaching them that, yeah, you have to drink milk to have good bones. And I've also thrown in, I was like, well, you can also get, you know, calcium from green vegetables and things like broccoli and kale and other stuff is really a great source of calcium and is actually very well absorbed um, forms of calcium too. Um, so again, you know, it's more complicated. And frankly, the fruit and vegetable people don't have a lobbying group. 
There's, there's no, <laughs> or they, they might, but it's very, very small and underfunded compared to the dairy and the meat people. So mm. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, learning that you can get calcium from other ways is probably pretty encouraging for lactose intolerant people. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> and especially in Yakima, you know, we have a large percentage of the population that's a Hispanic Latino in heritage and they don't always have great, uh, ability to absorb lactose. Um, Pretty much, unless you, unless your ancestry is from a northern European region of the world, mm. you're you're much uh, more likely to have problems with lactose intolerance. So, mm. um, there's a really interesting article. Uh, National Geographic did a whole uh, kind of study uh, of sorts on the evolution of diet. And so, anybody who's interested in the whole paleo debate and all of that stuff, if you just Google National Geographic evolution of diet article, and it it walks you through all of that. It's very interesting. <laughs> I'm sitting here shaking my head. You can't see that on the yeah. microphone, of course. That is but. super interesting because I even there's like a video that uh, was going around for a while and it was meant to be funny, but it's this guy who comes and sees this family in the 50s and he's like a time traveler or oh, whatever. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he comes and he's like, hey, don't eat those eggs. They're full of fat and they're <laughs> right, really right. unhealthy. And then he's like, they're just like, okay, whatever. And they're about to yeah. throw them away and he leaves and then comes back and he's like, never right. mind, we were wrong. Right, and right. then like, and he just keeps doing this yeah, over yeah. and over and over again. And he, right. he's like, well, we're going to go back to the beginning and see what they ate. Yeah, and yeah. he comes back and we're like, we don't know anything. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. like, that's yeah. like the whole point of the video is yeah. that they just, they really don't know. And I think, um, I think that, like you said, it starts uh-huh. off as good intentions, but right. there is a lot that we don't know. And the moderation approach seems to be yeah. kind of the most reasonable because <laughs> uh-huh. it's not like, I think when you get into extreme things with anything, not just with diets, right, right. you tend to have a higher risk of being sure. wrong or, exactly. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, yeah, that actually reminds me. I had I didn't even mention the cholesterol issue. That's oh, yeah. that's really kind of what happened in the eighties. Was you know we we thought that cholesterol was the problem. It wasn't so much fat. I mean, it it was lumped in with fat. But um, now we understand cholesterol is quite different than what we thought it once was. And mm-hmm. it's actually in every single one of our cells. All of our cells make cholesterol, oh, and wow. um, we need it for very important functions, but you don't have to eat it. But if you do eat it, it's probably actually not that bad for you. There's mm-hmm. really not a lot of evidence to support it recently. So um, the American Heart Association is kind of finally loosening their restrictions on egg yolks for um, mm-hmm. heart disease prevention. I think it's maybe up to four a week or something. But um, there's definitely a lot of controversy going on right now in the nutrition world, specifically when it comes to saturated fat, which is Fat that's firm at room temperature, that's the easiest way to identify saturated fat. Oh, okay. So coconut coconut oil um, and then, you know, butter and lard and all of that stuff. And there's some, some very interesting, you know, mixed – some studies are saying yes, some studies are saying no. So I'm going to kind of patiently wait and see what happens there. But the story with saturated fat is changing and, and cholesterol, I foresee, is going to kind of eventually get more and more loose and we're mm-hmm. eventually probably not really going to care so much about cholesterol. It's just – that historically speaking, most of the foods that are high in cholesterol are also very high in saturated fat. And saturated okay. fats are really probably the bigger problem. Huh. It's yeah. interesting that you said uh, coconut oil because I feel like uh-huh. that was a whole nother, like a whole well, other a huge thing had still right that's now, like yeah. still an argument yeah. where it's good for you. No, it's not. And everybody yeah. is freaking out. No, so and that, that goes back sense. to the replacement thing. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have no problem with people using coconut oil as long as they're using it instead of some other saturated fat that they're already using like butter or lard or whatever right but if you're using coconut oil in place of a monounsaturated fat oil like canola oil or olive oil that's actually a very different fatty acid profile and the evidence to support that type of substitution is really not there yet but mm-hmm. i know there's there's people that firmly believe coconut oil is the holy grail of nutrition yeah. <laughs> and that and kale <laughs> right yeah. well I, kale is still good i'm, but. One, of, I'm one of the kale supporters yeah. For sure, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. When it comes to those replacements, uh, that's a whole nother conversation that <laughs> yeah. I wanted to have. Yeah. Um, they especially seem to come up in sugar because people uh-huh. just want things sweet, you know, and sure. coffee mm-hmm. in the morning. If you don't have sugar in it and you're used right. to having sugar, What's it's a whole point? different animal. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there some of those replacements? I feel I've tasted some of them and uh-huh. I feel like they're, they just taste like chemicals. They uh-huh. taste awful and sugar, probably because I'm predisposed to it, tastes uh-huh. more natural to mm-hmm. me. Um, are there some of those things that are worse for you than sugar or potentially better for you as a replacement than sugar that you know of? Um, so I have to preface this with uh, with uh, communicating the idea that that we are physiologically wired to like sugar. This is why they give babies sugar water to suck on when they do, you know, poke their heel in the hospital and stuff like that. Like mm. sugar is a fundamental thing to survival for humans. So um, this is why if you look at, you know, tribes in Africa, they will, they'll climb trees barefoot to get, um, honey from bees and they'll use that honey and, and it's a very, the Tedzu, I think is the name of that tribe, but, um, or Kudzu, but, uh, yes, to get to your point, there are many sugar substitutes available, some of which are quote unquote natural, some of which are, uh, completely artificial. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have evidence to show that the artificial sweeteners, they're technically called non-nutritive sweeteners, mm-hmm. but most people just call them artificial sweeteners. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence to show that they're harmful, but um, I definitely get nervous when I have patients who say they're drinking like a six pack of Diet Coke every day. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, gosh. That's kind of a lot of, I mean, you know, and they do have actual quantity um, maximums that are that are for these artificial sweeteners based on a per weight basis um i don't have them off the top of my head but you can look those up and they're actually very very generous like you'd have to consume something like a case of diet coke to get the quantity of aspartame that is at the upper limit or something like that Mm. Mm -hmm. um that being said though i always like to ask the question of well what are you not drinking if you're drinking all this diet coke Mm -hmm. instead you know not to pick on diet coke but most of the time people are not drinking water mm-hmm. and uh, you know when 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 we get dehydrated we can have kind of a subacute dehydration status where it's not dangerous we're not going to die or have any real medical issues because of it but it feeds into the cycle of mindless eating of being hungry for no apparent reason even though you ate lunch 2 hours ago you're hungry <laughs> again have you drank enough water probably not so mm-hmm. Getting people to put down other beverages in place for water is definitely one of uh, my and many other nutritionists' goals in life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And a struggle, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Some people just, I don't like the taste of water. And so then you have to come up with, you know, you can put lemon and cucumber and all that other stuff. And then in in really extreme cases, I try and get people to, you know, I'll even say, well, what about a splash of juice or something? Mm -hmm. Um, Some people really like the artificially sweetened powder things Mm -hmm. they can pour in their water and... I'll be like, well, okay, you know, (laughs) you got to meet people where they're at. So, yeah. yeah. Um, When it comes to water replacements too, Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard a lot of people who don't like drinking water, but they drink something like fruit juice instead. And they're like, well, I drink fruit juice and Uh it's healthier than water because it has like vitamins and minerals. Yeah. um, But then you, when you really look at it, drinking a glass of orange juice is basically like drinking a almost like drinking a soda that has vitamins uh-huh. in it. Right. Um, could you speak a little bit on that? And again, I think those are just common misconceptions that mm-hmm. people have that are really, really hard to overcome. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I've got family members myself who, yeah, just like a month ago, I was like, why are you drinking a huge glass of orange juice every morning? 
what do you mean? Isn't it good for me? Well, no. <laughs> um, when you think about it, you know, uh, most American households have uh, large dishes and glasses in their cupboards. Um, you know, there's not many of us that have the actual juice glasses from the 50s, which were like four ounce size glasses, very, very <laughs> tiny. Wow. That's the portion of juice. Okay. That's a serving size of juice is four ounces, a half a cup. So when what really causes problems is that most people are drinking 12 ounces of juice, 16 ounces of juice. And frankly, I don't care if it's Sunny Delight, which is really barely juice at all, <laughs> or 100% orange juice or apple juice. It's still liquid carbohydrates is my what I call this stuff. So liquid carbs go into your stomach. They get absorbed extremely quickly through your intestinal endothelials, and it raises blood sugar very quickly. So that's a number one target for my focus. If if I'm dealing with somebody who has diabetes, I try and immediately get them off of all liquid carbohydrates. So if that means having them substitute in artificially sweetened carbohydrates because they're completely unwilling to switch to water, then that's at least a step in the right direction as far as their blood sugar goes. And I'm mm. willing to, to deal with that. And then down the road, you know, I try and kind of whittle that away too. But yeah, does that I yeah. feel like I just learned something new. Oh, good. <laughs> I didn't know that the juice, I mean, because I was yeah. thinking, I go, juice, I think the 100% ones, you think, sure. well, it's the same as eating the fruit, yeah. but you just explained it's not the same because it not absorbs a lot quicker. So Yeah, it's not the same. Awesome. It doesn't have any of the fiber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not the same at all. It's also way less filling. If you eat an apple mm -hmm. versus have a glass of, of apple juice, way different feeling afterwards. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. Yeah. Is there something uh, like physiologically too with mm -hmm. things like juice? I would imagine a glass of orange juice they advertise it as like there's like 37 oranges in this one glass <laughs> but i imagine that's shocking for your body because there's no other time in human history that we would have consumed sure. 37 oranges <laughs> right, worth right. of Speak whatever for yourself. They're, yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. so is there something to to that idea too um i don't know the exact quantity but if you've ever yeah. had a juicer at home which we did for a while until we broke it because we just juiced it to death but, <laughs> Um, yeah, you can, you can juice a ton of fruits and get, you know, a very modest size glass of juice out of it. So yeah, I, I guess that makes sense that there would be a handful or a bushel of oranges <laughs> inside of one glass <laughs> of orange juice. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, not a healthy way to go. And, you know, when you think about it again, a four ounce portion of juice is about 120 calories. So if you do wow. that math, eight ounce 16 ounce, that adds up to a lot of calories, especially when you think about, um, you know, most people are, are readily able to gain weight because again, our body is set up to gain weight. Um, we don't want to starve during the famine that our evolutionary biology says that we're always going to be prepared for. <laughs> so if we can uh, avoid that by, you know, saving every calorie, and some of us are better at saving calories than others, then that can be uh, beneficial. But of course, you know, your body doesn't understand what kind of world you're living in and doesn't understand that you can go down to the supermarket and buy a giant thing of Sunny Delight or orange juice or whatever it is mm -hmm. for practically nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now to wrap it up, um, we kind of keep talking about moderation and mm -hmm. how the whole idea of one big blanket fix isn't going to work. But right. unfortunately, people always kind of want that one big yeah. blanket fix. People don't want to spend all the time doing the research that it takes to uh -huh. really develop a healthy, you <laughs> yeah. know, grocery list or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I've always used, because admittedly I don't always do all the research, mm -hmm. um, is buy foods that you can read the ingredients and understand what they are. Uh -huh. Is that, uh, this is pretty much just for me at this point. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Is that a solid approach? Is that something that... Uh, 
you I, would recommend that people do? I think sometimes that could probably work fine. Um, a, a more simplified way that I tell people to do this is I tell people to buy food that looks like the food it was grown as. So if you're going to eat oatmeal, try and eat oatmeal that looks like oats. Mm. Most people don't even know what oats look like <laughs> because by the time most of us have seen oats, they are chopped up so fine they just kind of look like this white powdery stuff. Yeah. But oats are actually little kernels that kind of resemble rice in a way. Um, but the reason we don't typically eat them that way in their whole kernel form is because they take a really long time to cook. So most mm. people don't have time for that. Um, but if you get things like an instant pot or slow cooker, you know, you can cook that kind of stuff overnight or whatever and make it more um, accessible. So, but yeah, you you could look at the ingredients. The, the problem with that is that we have a lot of fortified foods that are perfectly fine, like, you know, brown rice or other things, but they might have micronutrients added to them, like, you know, riboflavin or thiamine or other things that look kind of foreign to people. So they might perceive that as like, oh, that's processed and artificial when in reality it's just the the United States and, and many countries throughout the world fortify their food supplies. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And <laughs> then another uh, blanket solution uh-huh. to, to make me and potentially other staff. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any foods that you would recommend people when they go to the grocery store the next time uh-huh. to, to get to have on stock in their house or to avoid completely to kind of have that blanket of like, don't just don't eat that? Well, one rule that all dietitians know, and we all say this to our, our clients or our patients, is if you shop the perimeter of the grocery store, that's usually where the quote unquote healthy food is. Mm. The produce section is usually on the outside. The Depending on your views, the meat and dairy section are usually on, on the outside. Um, the bakery. The, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably not a not a good one. But most of the processed food, like you know the the chips and the crackers and the candy and the sugary cereal and all, most of that type of stuff is in mm. the internal parts of the grocery store. So if you can first fill your cart with stuff from the outside, that's usually a good way to go. Also, telling people to grocery shop without uh, being starving. So mm. don't leave work and go to the grocery store when you're completely hungry because that's just a perfect way to sabotage yourself. But yeah, you're never going to see a, a diet book written by Dr. Kathleen Briggs early because I'm uh, firmly opposed to these blanket, like mm-hmm. it'll work for everybody. Um, it, I find it really frustrating because I think a lot of people who are promoting those types of products are kind of, you know, they're just making money off of people's ignorance. And I guess I can't blame them. That's kind of what our capitalist society is built on. But um, we, we, uh, we really are doing a disservice to people by by claiming that you know this one magic thing will work for everybody you know the the blood type diet the atkins diet the south beach diet the cabbage soup diet the you know mm. there's endless diets out there so mm-hmm. yeah the cabbage soup one is probably the worst my mom did that for yeah, a while yeah my mom did too <laughs> there's a yeah. cabbage soup diet yeah you just you only eat cabbage soup yeah and As you can imagine, you lose a lot of weight. You do. And <laughs> it's it, like a 600 calorie I tried diet. it for one whole day, yeah. and then I was like, I'm so starving, I'm going to hurt someone. It's a yeah. fantastic <laughs> idea if yeah. you're developing a diet. Yeah. Because you could replace cabbage soup with a lot of things and maybe just get people aboard. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks again for tuning into the Scientific Method. To be the first to hear our upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.